The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, it's being reported, Roger, that the US President Joe Biden is pressing Boris Johnson today to work with the EU to end the bitter standoff over Northern Ireland. Sources say that Biden has already ordered his officials to issue a formal diplomatic rebuke to the UK for imperiling the Good Friday Agreement and inflaming tensions. Now, Biden and Johnson are meeting in Cornwall ahead of the G7 summit this weekend. It is Biden's first overseas trip since taking office. Well, as for Europe, the EU Commission's vice president is claiming a crossroads has been reached with the UK over how post-Brexit trade rules are enforced in Northern Ireland. Maros Shevkovic says his patience is wearing very, very thin and he's threatening tariffs. Well, whilst Johnson and Biden and the G7 leaders are expected to pledge a billion COVID doses to be shared with developing countries around the world to tackle the pandemic, the UK continues to struggle with rising virus cases. The Delta variant, which was first detected in India, is spreading quickly in Britain. On Tuesday, a strength and support package of extra testing and vaccination measures was introduced for the northwest of England. And I'm pleased to say that we have joining us now Dan Jarvis, Labour MP for Barnsley Central and also the fairly recently elected mayor of the she- of Sheffield City in the Sheffield City region. Dan, a warm welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, firstly, on, on the pandemic, Barnsley has been a hotspot for the variant. So just tell us, how is the vaccine rollout, the additional testing drive going? It's going very well in South Yorkshire. There's been a Herculean effort by the NHS supported by some amazing work by volunteers. And that means that the rollout has been very effective. And of course, the vaccine is our route out of this pandemic. And given the pressures that we're under at the moment with the Delta variant, I think it's incredibly important that everybody who's been offered a vaccine takes it as quickly as they possibly can. Clearly, we are waiting to see what the government decides about the 21st of June unlock, and I would anticipate a, an announcement about that early next week. And I think it's really important that businesses, communities have that clarity about what's going to happen so they can plan accordingly. Now, your colleague, uh, Andy Burnham, uh, Mayor of Greater Manchester, has been asking for more vaccines for his area. Um, he's been rebuffed on that. Uh, would you also like to see more vaccines coming to Barnsley? There definitely needs to be more vaccinations made available in areas where the risk is higher. So currently, the risk from the Delta variant is higher in the northwest than it is in South Yorkshire. So the government needs to be moving heaven and earth to make sure that at a local and regional level, all of the resources in place, whether that's additional vaccine capability, whatever support is required, is there 
so that we have the best possible chance of being able to unlock on the 21st of June. There's obviously a running commentary about whether that will happen or not. But Andy's certainly right to be shouting up for Greater Manchester to make sure that they've got the best possible chance of reducing their rate at the earliest available opportunity. Is it really safe, though, given the increase in cases in your region um, to reopen on the 21st of June, to still be trying to push for that? The government is sounding much more doubtful than a couple of weeks ago about about the full reopening in England. Well, that's the choice that the government are going to have to make. I do think that they need to be led by the data, not by an arbitrary date, which was previously agreed. I think, like everybody else, I'm acutely aware that the Euros start tomorrow Wales playing on Saturday, England against Croatia on Sunday and Scotland on Monday. The weather's due to be great. So many people, of course, are kind of gearing up to to enjoy the football and to enjoy the good weather. So I think that is obviously great, but presents some risks in terms of transmission rates. So government have to make a difficult choice about whether it is the right thing to do and marrying up the sort of potential risk from a public health perspective to the impact that it would have on the economy. But what I think the government absolutely needs to be doing is making sure that in areas where the risk is greatest, there is additional support. I also think that particularly for the business community who are currently planning on the 21 June unlock, if that subsequently doesn't happen, there needs to be proper compensation and support for those businesses who are currently working on the assumption that it will happen. So I accept it's a difficult decision for the government. They need to make it as soon as possible so that ample notice is provided. And where people have been disadvantaged as a result, if they do postpone the unlock, they need to make sure that the business support is in place. Now, the last time we were talking in these sort of terms was when the tiering structure was going on, of course, highly controversial, uh, not least, of course, where you are. Um, But... Then the problem seemed to be communication. I lost count of the number of local people we spoke to who said, no, the government just isn't talking to us, local mayors, local councillors. They weren't getting that communication. Are you now getting that kind of communication? Do you have a hotline to uh, Matt Hancock or Michael Gove or any of those? I wouldn't say that I had a hotline, but I am in regular contact with ministers about these things. You're right. The decisions back in the autumn about the tiering arrangements were very controversial not least because mayors and local authorities weren't properly involved in any sort of process of consultation. It felt like it was being done to us, uh, not with us. And I think there's a bit of a risk, again, that the government are going to take this decision about the 21st of June. That's their responsibility. We accept that. But it is really useful, I would have thought, to be having conversations with mayors and local authorities and people within the NHS at a local level to get that granularity of understanding, because this is a big and important decision. The government have got to get it right. And as I say, the 21st of June is a date that previously had been identified. But the most important thing is the data Uh, and Mm. the public health requirements of making sure that we can keep the public safe need to obviously be very carefully weighted against the impact that that the restrictions have on the economy. Okay, that's the pandemic. Um, What about your role? The Metro mayors um, have come to prominence uh, in the crisis, Uh, you know, particularly Labour Labour Metro mayors uh, in many instances. You are both an MP and a Metro mayor. Can you really do both jobs effectively? (laughs) Well, slightly unfortunately for me, I'm the only Metro mayor who inherited a situation where the powers the money wasn't in place. And that was the reason why I stayed uh, as a Member of Parliament. And actually, it was only by being a Member of Parliament, I was able to put a devolution arrangement in place in South Yorkshire, which is similar to the others around the country. But I think the, the, the key point to make, really, is about the importance of devolution and about the important role that mayors have to play. 
if the government are serious about the levelling up agenda, if the government want to drive forward an economic recovery as we come out of the pandemic, they've got to have that close working relationship with the mayors. And I work very closely on a cross-party basis with all of the metro mayors. We want to work closely with national government, but there are big events coming up. There's the government going to be publishing a white paper on devolution and on levelling up. We've got a spending review taking place in the autumn. These are massive moments for our country, and I think the government need to work very closely with us as metro mayors to make sure that the activity is properly joined up for the, for the benefit of the communities that we represent. And if we can get that right, I think that could be a, a very powerful partnership indeed. Yeah, but to push the point, once that goes through, are you going to stay as an MP? You said it's important to get this through. Once it's got through, will you stand down as an MP? <laughs> Look, I, I, I've been dealing with a global health crisis, the likes of which we've not seen for, for 100 or, or more years, and actually being able to leverage Parliament and have that kind of regular contact with ministers is incredibly helpful. I've always said the only person who sort of suffers by the existing arrangements is myself and my family. It is a unique and a sort of strange arrangement. I've said it's not one for the longer term. But I go back to the point I made just a moment ago. I'm the only mayor who inherited a situation where it wasn't all done and dusted. All of the others, Andy and Andy Street, West Midlands, they arrived and it was there, agreed. That wasn't the case in South Yorkshire. We had to work very hard in order to put those agreements in place. We've done that now, and we're really starting to motor on and show what devolution can offer for our region. My priority has been mm. getting us through the pandemic. It's been an incredibly challenging time, and it will continue to be challenging because the economic impact of COVID will, will be lived with for many, many years to come. And that's why we need the basis of an economic recovery plan so that we can properly level up uh, and drive our region forward. And that's a responsibility on us, but it's also a responsibility on national government. And I want to work with them closely in order to deliver upon the, uh, you know, the, the commitments that we've both made. OK, well, you're a Labour um, politician who's managed to actually win twice. Um, pretty hard for many of your colleagues. Batley and Spen, the by-election there is going to be a huge challenge for Keir Starmer. What happens if Labour loses? Well, we're not planning to lose. And I think that we are fortunate in the sense that we have got an outstanding candidate in Kim Leadbeater. I know Kim well. I've campaigned with her on many occasions. She's absolutely rooted in those communities in West Yorkshire. And I think that she would be a fantastic member of parliament for Batley and Spen. So what I will be doing and what I encourage all my colleagues to, to do, and I'm sure that, that they will be doing, is run the strongest possible campaign to have those conversations that you have to have with people on the doorstep during by-elections and to make the case for them to elect Kim as their Member of Parliament. And that's what we'll be doing. I think if we can get that right and if we can kind of make that case, I think that we can and will win the battle and spend by-election. But nobody pretends it's going to be easy. It's a tough time for the party at the moment. The government are benefiting from the rollout of the vaccination programme, which, let's be honest about it, has been led by the NHS. But the government have got a political bounce on the back of it. So this is a tough election and it is a tough test for us. But we've got a fantastic candidate. We're fighting hard to win. And that's what we're intending to do. And very briefly, if you would, Dan, I mean, when Gareth Southgate seems to make the kind of appeal to Englishness that Keir Starmer can't, I mean, that's not a huge boost for Keir Starmer, is it? Well, I think... Gareth Southgate is not only an impressive football manager, he's a very impressive person. And I think lots of people will have been deeply impressed by the contribution he's made in recent time. But I think I would just sort of gently point out that Keir Starmer has inherited an incredibly difficult situation. 
and mm. actually has got the biggest challenge that any leader of the opposition has had in, in 100 or more years. You know, he inherited a party that had been very heavily defeated in the 2019 general election. And then very quickly, we found ourselves in a global pandemic. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. And Caroline, we start with Matt Hancock. Yes, indeed. He has denied lying to Boris Johnson at any point during the pandemic. The health secretary was being questioned by the Health and Social Care Committee and Science and Technology Committee over the allegations that were made previously by the Prime Minister's former aide, Dominic Cummings. Now, Hancock, also in that testimony, interestingly, said that China could have stopped the global coronavirus pandemic by closing its borders to any international travel more swiftly. Meanwhile, more trouble about tests. A new report claims there are serious flaws with the government's list of virus PCR test providers. That's for people who are arriving here in the UK. Travellers from amber and red list nations have to be screened twice after they arrive. And which the consumer campaign group found some companies ended up charging more than their listing suggested. Many kits were actually delayed. It's warning that travellers are being left, quotes, at the mercy of rogue operators, but a government spokesman said it regularly evaluates the performance of all providers. Well, the Johnson government is also on the hunt for savings. Reducing the student loan repayment threshold to under £20,000 could save the government £3.8 billion. That's according to new research from the Higher Education Policy Institute on behalf of the London School of Economics. Now, they examined possible changes to student loans to help make savings in the forthcoming spending review, such as removing interest rates and increasing the repayment period. Roger, did you know this? The average debt Uh, on graduation for students is expected to be some £47,000. The proportion of loans written off, though, is likely to be about 54%, so half of student loans written off. Well, I have a daughter who is uh, on the burden of one of those big debts right now. Don't tell me about it, as they say. Right, let's uh, take our focus back down to Cornwall. Global leaders of the G7 are gathering there. Today, Boris Johnson is meeting President Biden for a one-to-one. Now, it's a crucial meeting for the UK as Britain attempts to stamp its post-Brexit identity on the world. But what can or what should we expect? Well, joining us now is Dr David Blagden, who's Senior Lecturer in International Security at the Strategy and Security Institute at the University of Exeter. Uh, Thanks very much for being with us, Dr Blagden. We'll get onto the specifics of all this in the moment, but in terms of a diplomatic event, the G7, the bilateral, how much does all this matter for Boris Johnson and the UK? Uh, It matters in in a couple of ways. Uh, It matters presentationally. Uh, It's quite fortuitous that the UK's chairmanship has come around this time because at a time when the UK is trying to project itself as an independent major power separately from from the EU, um, then it's pretty good optics for him to be able to uh, host this this major gathering. Uh, And it's also reasonably substantively significant in the sense that the Western major powers, if you like, are perhaps facing more intense competition from 
other major powers like China and Russia than they have done for for many, many years. So actually being able to get uh, the leaders of those seven um, big, developed, uh, advanced economies that are also sort of political and military allies in one place um, could have some quite uh, valuable substantive uh, content as well in terms of what they can discuss. Okay, so the optics of this are very important. Well, one of the key items uh, also for today, surely, is uh, President Biden expected to push Johnson on relations with the EU and the Northern Ireland Protocol. If it is the price of a US trade deal, do you think that the UK is going to back down from the standoff with Brussels? How tense is this situation? Uh, it is tense. Um, in some ways, it belies, um, there's often a sort of rather rosy-eyed idea in the UK of the US and the special relationship, uh, and then basically just being sort of a larger version of Britain with funny accents. Um, but actually, the US having quite um, strong and assertive um, preferences on, on the Northern Ireland situation really does put the UK in a bind. It's why the UK is already in this situation where it's effectively created a, a customs border, a trade border within itself, um, you know, lopping off Northern Ireland from the rest of the intra-UK customs union, which obviously many countries would not want to sort of internally subdivide their economies in that way. But that pressure from outside powers, which is the EU, but it's also um, the United States, which was an important um, part of the original Good Friday um, process uh, and and really is willing to exert quite a lot of pressure uh, on the UK over this. You know, there's a very strong um, uh, sort of Republican-Irish movement within the United States that is consequential in terms of US domestic politics, particularly in the Democratic Party. Um, so, yeah, this really is a, a lever that the United States can hold against the UK now that the UK has put itself in a situation of needing these external trade deals. And it's interesting in that light of, of the US resuming, in a way, its kind of global policeman role, which we saw rolled back a lot uh, uh, under Donald Trump. I mean, in this case, there's no obvious interest, I suppose, strategically the US has in Northern Ireland or in Ireland, but, but it's seen as something they need to do, part of their role. So that really is a change now, isn't it? Um, yes. I mean, in many ways, um, there were far the Trump years, the substantive shifts were smaller than the rhetorical coarseness. You know, actually, the United States continued to double down on an, a number of sort of, you know, international commitments. You know, for all the talk of abandoning the Middle East, actually, the United States remained deeply militarily engaged in the Middle East. For all the talk of abandoning NATO, actually, more U.S. forces came to Europe. Um, so, so in some ways, the substance of the Trump years was less than the um, sort of rather crass, crude rhetoric of the particular occupant of the White House. But yeah, you are right um, that that in many ways the Biden administration is attempting a reversion to what you might call the pre-Trump normal. Um, it will just be uh, increasingly difficult for it to do that, you know, uh, as other powers rise, you know, um, China, Russia, etc. Um, the idea of the United States being able to completely police the globe as it did in the height of the 1990s and 2000s, um, those years might, might um, struggle to come back. Yeah, well, a quick glance at the share of global GDP, the economic might represented by the G7 is also quite revelatory, you know, in the sense that it has gone down in the face, as you say, of the, the rise of China and Russia. So I suppose I pose this question. Is the G7 now an effective tool for standing up to Russia and China? Um, 
It is, uh, and it's not. You know, it's never been an alliance like NATO or like the United States treaty commitments with East Asian states, for example, which is sort of a bit like NATO, but not quite the same. Um, it was always a sort of effort at a coordinating forum between some economies that also have a lot in common and also broadly agree on certain political principles. I mean, one area of value that it does have is that, unlike the Cold War, for example, where really um, it was all about the Western states countering the Soviet Union, um, one of the hard things now is that you've got these two potentially hostile major powers. One is a lot bigger than the other. Um, one is in some ways perhaps more uh, overtly truculent than the other. Um, and that's sort of pulling the different G7 members in different directions. You know, obviously, Japan has a very different prioritization of China um, compared to what the Europeans think of Russia. Uh, and the United States is sort of finding itself pulled in both directions by allies demanding more help with their regional security concerns. So in that sense, the G7 then actually gets all of those countries, you know, Japan as well as the Europeans, as well as the United States and Canada, in one place um, could be quite valuable in terms of the sort of overall coordination of what the West wants to do about all of its global problems. And you mentioned NATO there, because that's another interesting uh, part of all this. We've got NATO meeting, of course, coming up next week. Defence spending was always the bugbear, particularly under President Trump of America, really concerned about the contribution of other NATO allies. And often there have been questions, really, about NATO's function. Is it any clearer now what NATO's for or whether it can survive? In some ways, it's clearer what NATO is for now than it was going back. 10, 15 years, you know, going back sort of to a decade or two decades ago, there was a lot of talk about how do we preserve NATO? Does it need to be global NATO? Does NATO need to be policing Afghanistan? Does NATO need to be become a club of global democracies that extends an invitation to Australia? There was a lot of this kind of what is NATO really for? Because it looked like its traditional state-based threats in Europe had gone away. Um, since the Georgia War of 2008, Ukraine situation of 2014, and Russia's general recovery in terms of relative capabilities plus its willingness to use those capabilities to assert itself. Uh, in some ways, NATO has recovered that original raison d'etre of being a primarily geographically located mm. balancing block, an alliance block directed at a potentially threatening major power. But you are also right, of course, that those internal tensions about who really cares about what, the Southern Europeans care a lot more about the situation in North Africa or the Middle East than maybe the Baltic states or the Eastern Europeans do. Um, so there's still questions about who cares about what. And there's still always this question of free riding. When you have one much, much greater power in an alliance, um, it's very tempting for the weaker ones to say, well, they'll provide the security so I can spend those tax euros or tax pounds on roads and hospitals and whatever it is else that we'd rather spend those money on and let American taxpayers take care of our security, which obviously is frustrating when you're an American taxpayer. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.